We just finished our series through the gospel according to Mark. And next Sunday, we're going to start a new series, a six-part series, I think, um, called Gospel Culture. And if you've been at Bethel for seven years, um, maybe you were here the last time we had a series called Gospel Culture. So um, I had read a book, I didn't bring it with me here, but called The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ by Ray Ortland. And it was extremely helpful. And so that's what was kind of the genesis for that series seven years ago. I'll just give you one quick quote, kind of whet your appetite for what's coming. He writes this in that book, gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The gospel does more than renew us personally within. The doctrines of grace also create a culture of grace called a healthy church where the gospel is articulated at the level of doctrine and incarnated at the level of culture and vibe and ethos and feel and relationships and community. But getting a church there and keeping a church there is not easy. Without the doctrine, the culture is unsustainable. Without the culture, the doctrine appears pointless and powerless. So can see how those things are so vital. And I think by God's grace, we have that gospel culture here. We're not perfect. We've got plenty of ways that we can grow and improve. And um, by God's grace, we will do that. But we want to maintain that. We want to continue to cultivate that kind of culture here. So there were seven texts that we look at seven years ago. Um, I think it was a seven-part series. We're going to cover six different texts, but texts that strike the same theme that show the vital connection between what we believe and how we live the gospel of grace and the culture of grace in the church. Um, if you're interested after that, we're going to do a brief series on the prayers of Paul. And then in the summer, we're either going to do a series through the book of Proverbs or through the Ten Commandments. Not sure on that yet. Um, so we'll see. But this morning, we're going to take a week to study a short little New Testament letter, um, the letter to Philemon. So you can find it on page 1,000 if you're using a pew Bible. So you can turn to page 1,000. And you can find this little book. And we're going to go over the whole book, kind of a flyover. We've never covered it. <laughs> In case anybody's wondering, well, why Philemon? Well, we've never covered it. And it's an awesome little book, so it's about time, right? Um, why not Philemon is really the question. Um, so what we're going to see in this book is beautiful evidence that the gospel changes everything. The transforming power of the gospel is all over this little book. All right, so let's read it together. And I'll read it. You can follow along and then... Um, we'll dive in. So Paul writes to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So it's quite possible that Aphia is Philemon's wife and Archippus is their son. Don't know for sure, but that's possible. The church is meeting in their house. So it would make sense. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, 
and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So this little letter um, to Philemon is one of the four prison epistles. Ever heard that phrase? The prison epistles. Well, what does that refer to? Four New Testament letters of Paul, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, written most likely from Paul's two-year imprisonment in Rome, house arrest in Rome. You can read about that next, 27, 28. So Philemon was probably written around in AD 62, Okay. So Philemon was the master of a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus had apparently fled. Maybe he had stolen something. You see that in verses 18 and 19, if he owes you anything. Um, And he's run away. And it's also possible that he simply ran away because if you are an indentured servant, like indentured means bound by a contract, to run away was in effect to steal from your master. So when he ran away, Onesimus ends up in Rome where Paul's in prison. I mean, how in the world did Onesimus come to be in contact with Paul? Colossae was 100 miles from Rome. How, How did that even happen? Was it kind of by accident and the sovereignty of God? I mean, Paul was under house arrest, so he could have visitors, but still, this is very strange. So perhaps Onesimus ran to Paul seeking his mediation with Philemon. I mean, Philemon was a Christian and it was probably well known in his household that he was a Christian and no doubt Paul's role in Philemon's life was also well known. Did you notice it? When he says, to say nothing of you owing me even your own self, almost certainly that means that Paul led Philemon to Christ. So if Paul had been instrumental in changing Philemon's life. You can imagine he talked about that in his household, and so maybe Onesimus knows of Paul. Or perhaps he initially fled, and then finding that that was no true freedom, and maybe he became desperate, and he sought out the Apostle Paul. We can't know. We don't know. The details just aren't there. Those are couple of potential scenarios that make sense with the details in the letter, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that Onesimus was converted through Paul's ministry. See it in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child. Paul's literally saying, I gave birth to him. It's weird unless you have read John 3. You must be born again, spiritual rebirth. So he became Paul's child in the faith while he was in prison. So, um, we know that Onesimus 
<laughs> I lost my place, sorry. Where am I? Um, okay, so he's converted through Paul's ministry, and now Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. So Onesimus is actually carrying this letter to his master. Um, so Paul knew Philemon well. We see that as we read the letter. Um, and Paul writes to appeal to Philemon regarding how he should receive Onesimus after all that has transpired. So that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of the background. But what is the meaning of this letter and what is its significance for us today? That's what we're going to consider here under five points. Okay, so the first point, we just need to deal with the issue of slavery um, so that that's not a hang-up for anyone, um, and also to help us because certainly you know some people for whom that's a hang-up, and you need to be prepared to be able to answer the question, like, does the Bible condone slavery? So is there justification for slavery here? I mean, why doesn't Paul denounce slavery as an unjust institution? What does it say about Christianity that Paul was seemingly comfortable with this unjust status quo? I mean, this isn't the only text in the New Testament. Colossians 3, Ephesians 6, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Timothy 6, 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, slaves, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Or Titus 2, 9 says bondservants or slaves. Again, do we have those texts? Maybe, maybe not. Um, Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. So how do we deal with that? Why didn't, call, why didn't Paul call for the abolition of slavery? Why didn't he write to raise up the first century equivalent of William Wilberforce? And especially when Paul addresses the slave owners, the masters, why doesn't he tell them to just free all their slaves? Does this mean that the Bible condones slavery? Like, again, we need to know the answer to this question. Um, it's a question we need to wrestle with, but definitely a question that people that we know who are not Christians, people who may be dismissing the Christian faith because of a number of poor representations of Christianity in history and maybe misunderstandings of what the Bible says, and this kind of text has been used in the past, certainly it was in America, um, to justify slaveholders, slave traders, slave owners in Europe and in America. Okay? So we need to be able to explain what's going on here. So in the first century, this is really helpful to know, by some estimates, one-third of the people in the Roman Empire at the time of Paul's writing were slaves. But slavery was not a product of race issues, racism in the first century. It was a result of birth, like to whom you were born. Sometimes you were born into slavery. It was a result of poverty. You didn't have bankruptcy laws. If you get in trouble, you sold yourself and your labor to pay off that debt. If you were conquered in battle, sometimes you became a slave in that you know, winning kingdoms, kingdom, and so forth. So even those slaves were usually thought of and often treated as property, it was not the race-based chattel slavery that blights the history of our nation and that of Europe. Okay, so to be sure, some of the slavery in the first century was wickedly unjust treatment of persons, persons made in the image of God. But there was also quite a bit of servanthood slavery that was more like being an employee than it was like being property. There were doctors and teachers or tutors who were slaves, as well as those who did, obviously, menial labor as well. Some servants, for instance, were the managers of large and wealthy households. So that role would have, been, would have had more in common with, say, an executive assistant today or even a portfolio manager than some of the stereotypes that we may have of slaves. So one New Testament scholar, Murray Harris, has written a book all about the issue of slavery in the first century, and he writes this. In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners. 
and held responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service. They were not denied the right of public assembly and were not socially segregated, at least in the cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Their natural inferiority was not assumed. Okay, so that's really helpful to know. So again, when we oftentimes, as we read texts like this or in Ephesians or Colossians, that parallel modern day to employee-employer relationship is really justified, okay? Um, so living in a democratic republic like we do, we may not realize that political labors toward the abolition of slavery would have been all but impossible for these early Christians. Um, there was not the option of democratic process like we have today. And add to that, the Christians were a persecuted minority. So that's one of the reasons why Paul writes the way that he does, right? But also it should be said that the relational transformation that Paul appeals for in this book of Philemon and elsewhere in the New Testament would have been shockingly countercultural in the realm of masters and slaves. Status distinctions were deeply ingrained in Greco-Roman culture, and what Paul writes here is just like crazy countercultural in Philemon. So this letter and the rest of the New Testament sowed seeds of the destruction of slavery. F.F. F. Bruce wrote it like this, the gospel brought people into a situation in which slavery could only wilt and die. So much more could be said, but we need to move on to the meat of this mighty little letter, okay? So point number two, transformation, um, which is really the main point of this book, that gospel changes everything. The transformative power of the gospel is front and center and all over the place in this little book. And we see that life-changing power at work in a couple different areas, okay? First, in personal transformation, so it's obvious that the gospel changed everything for Philemon, right? That's kind of assumed. Paul led him to faith, and this man, he was the real deal. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul prays, or he, he shares how he prays with Philemon here, the way that he thanks God for him and the way that he prays for him. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love, your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. This guy's the real deal. Verse 7, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And then look down at verse 21 and 22. Paul was confident of his obedience. And he wrote that he knew that he would do even more than Paul had said. And he can easily say, hey, prepare a guest room for me um, because he knows of the generous, hospitable heart of this guy, Philemon. So the gospel had transformed him personally. Second, the gospel transformed Onesimus, the slave. So the name Onesimus was actually a very common name given to slaves in the first century. It means useful or profitable. So there were lots of Onesimuses out there. Sadly, it's kind of a generic name applied to a lot of these slaves. But look at verse 11. It's a play on words. So Paul says, he became my child in my imprisonment. Like he came to faith. I led him to Jesus and led him to faith in Christ. And then verse 11, he says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful He's living up to his name, to you and to me. He's been transformed by the power of the gospel. So maybe he wasn't a very faithful slave. Maybe he wasn't very helpful. And now his life has been tra transformed by the power of the gospel. So the gospel turned a thieving rebel slave into a beloved brother. The gospel turned a useless person into a useful one. So we see the transforming power of the gospel. Do we believe in the transforming power of the gospel? I mean, are there people in your life 
that you just think are useless and kind of like hopeless. Maybe they are just like perfect candidates for the transforming power of the gospel. Like we shouldn't write anybody off. So think maybe of a child or an employee or someone you know who seems just hopeless and useless. Maybe you should start praying for that person. That is the kind of person God can change. Don't give up on them. Perhaps God will use you or someone else like he used Paul to get their attention and change their life forever because the gospel changes everything. And we see that life-changing power at work, not only in personal transformation, but also relational transformation. So look at Paul's love. Look at the relational dynamics here. And this is what the gospel does. Look at Paul's love for Philemon. Look at verse 1. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. This is not just throwaway words. Like These are meaningful, intentional word choices. Look at Philemon's love for Paul in verse 7. I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. Like this guy had been loving and faithful and generous and sacrificial toward Paul and towards so many others. Look at Paul's love also for Onesimus. He's sending his child, verse 10. He's sending his very heart, verse 12. You see that? I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. My heart is bound up in this guy. I love him so much. And then verse 16, he's a beloved brother. So the gospel changes relational dynamics. And then the center stage relational transformation that Paul is after is between Philemon and Onesimus. Look at verses 16 and 17. He wants to prepare him Listen, this isn't accidental. You know, he says it, you know, kind of tentatively. This perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. So talk about transformed relationship. The main description of the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus is no longer master-slave, but beloved brother to beloved brother. I mean, if you think about it, being members of the family of God, the household of faith, that changes everything, right? So Philemon and Philemon and Onesimus both have the same spiritual father. And they are eternal brothers now because the gospel changes everything. And so we see it over and over again in this letter and throughout the New Testament. Christianity is a heart religion, like an internal inside to outside change, not just behavior modification, not just veneer, you know, stuff. This is love. Your loves change. Your heart changes. Personal transformation, relational transformation. Love is at the heart of the Christian faith. These loving familial dynamics make that clear. So the gospel changes everything. We see it in personal transformation, relational transformation. Also, notice how it transforms spiritual leadership in this book. Did you notice how Paul appealed to Philemon? Just look at a couple examples here. Verses 9 and 10. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Look at verses 13 to 14. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord, willingly chosen. Again, Christianity is a heart Religion, not just external compliance. So Paul's example here is, I am not going to lord it over people. I'm going to appeal to Philemon because I want his obedience to come from the heart, not be forced 
from the outside. I mean, Paul is advanced in age, right? He says it. He's in prison for Christ. If anybody could pull the card, like, listen, I don't have time for your drama, you two. I'm old. I'm in prison. I don't have the energy to go back and forth on this. Like, here's what you got to do. Do it. Right? That's oftentimes what we associate with old. No, just, well, sometimes. Okay. Um, So you would think he'd be more qualified to command than appeal. But he's reflecting the nature of God in his ways and means as a spiritual leader. God actually does the same thing of us. If anybody in the universe has the right to say, do it because I said so, God could command us like that. But rarely are there bald commands in the Bible. God doesn't say, do it because I said so. Look at the commands in the Bible and notice all of the grace around it. Do this because. Take some time to think through that. It's amazing how God appeals to us. Never to undermine his authority, and he is the Lord, and we shouldn't mess with his authority, but just notice he reasons with us. He gives us gracious reasons why we should trust and obey him over and over and over again. Do you think that might have any implications for us as parents? Do you think that might have any implications for us in discipleship, in leading ministries, and even in our work? So Paul wants and God wants our willing obedience, not just our mere compliance. Because the gospel changes everything, changes us from the inside out. So let's drill into this relational transformation a little bit more and consider, third point, the reconciling power of the gospel. So when you think about what's the transaction that's being called for here, like we should note what the consequences could have been in the first century. Philemon could rightly punish or even kill Onesimus for doing what he did. The ESV study Bible notes that Roman society expected, expected brutal punishment of fugitive slaves and bond servants at times resulting in death. So in that social context, Philemon had the right to brutally beat and even kill Onesimus for his impropriety. At the very least... He could punish him severely without the slightest breach of the law. So think about it again. One third of the population, slaves. Slave uprisings were a constant threat, a serious one, if one third of the population are slaves. So they were stamped out savagely in the first century. So Paul appeals for Philemon to receive him warmly. Not just don't beat him, go easy on him. Receive him warmly. Receive him as you would receive me. What? Like, how would Philemon receive Paul? He's the one that led him to Christ. His whole life has changed. His eternity has changed because of Paul's ministry. How would he receive Paul? Now do that for Onesimus. That is amazing. But the gospel changes everything. If Philemon complies, imagine, just again, like get in the shoes, the sandals, whatever, first century. If Philemon complies, imagine what some of his neighbors might have thought, both at a personal and a professional level. Like at best, maybe like, what a pushover. At worst, they could view this as dangerous. Like he's going to encourage disrespect and rebellion among other slaves. But the gospel changes everything. So instead of brutal punishment, forgiveness. Philemon, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Cover debts because our debts have been covered. Look at what Paul says in verses 18 to 19. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. 
And Paul's not joking. I write this with my own hand. It's a way to underline his guarantee of repayment. I will repay it. But then he does throw in, to say nothing of you owing me even your own self, which could feel a little passive aggressive. Um, but I don't think that's what he's doing because look at what he says. He, he, if you were just passive aggressive, you'd stop right there. But he says, yes, brother, I do want some benefit from you in the Lord. Like, I'm just going to go ahead and say it straight up. Refresh my heart in Christ. This is not a selfish appeal on Paul's account, right? So Murray Harris writes it like this, that same guy that wrote the book on slavery. If debts are under review, you owe infinitely more to me, Paul to Philemon, than Onesimus does to you. I have not charged you who are my son in the faith. You should not charge Onesimus, who is now your Christian brother. But if you choose to, I will pay on his behalf. So Paul says, the debt Onesimus owes you, I want you to charge it to me. Isn't that an echo of the Savior who paid the debt of our sin? And he actually wants Philemon's response to echo our Savior's work for us. That's the benefit Paul wants. And he knows that he's asking for something costly. He's asking Philemon to pay a cost, but the purpose is that Onesimus will be forgiven and restored. And Philemon will gain him as a brother and treat him as such. That's what would refresh Paul's heart. So the gospel can enable a sinned against slave owner, employer, to forgive and welcome the one who sinned against him, stole from him. Forgiveness for the sake of reconciliation. So this is true heart transformation, not mere sterile transaction stuff here. But this is the power of the gospel. Transformed relationships, new identities. He's no longer the useless slave. He is the useful, beloved brother. New identity. And actually, new identity for Philemon, too. You're not just really first and foremost master. You are brother to him and he to you. So changes identity, changes status, where the new description, the main description of the relationship is no longer slave master, but beloved brother to beloved brother. Because Christianity is a heart religion, not just behavioral compliance. The gospel changes everything, personal, relational, and it's all accomplished through reconciliation and forgiveness, which is how we all come into the kingdom, right? It's the only way that we have any right to be here is our debts need to be paid by the one who died in our place on the cross and said, it is finished, paid in full. And he rose from the dead, because, which is vindication and a clear stamp of approval, like, yep, that debt was paid. So the gospel changes everything, and the gospel creates when there's that personal transformation, that relational transformation, it creates a new society. Point number four. What is a society? A society is a group of individuals typically subject to the same authority and dominant cultural expectations. It's a community that's distinguishable by particular aims and conduct and patterns of relationships between individuals. The gospel creates a new society, the church. Within whatever society on earth those people live. And as such, the church is like a little embassy of the kingdom of heaven on earth in America or Zimbabwe or Australia or wherever. Or you could say that the church, this new society, is like the vanguard of the new creation. You know what a vanguard is? The forefront of, an, of a movement. Could be military action or movement. Could be otherwise. Here's the point. One day, Jesus is going to return, and God is going to make all things new. New creation. But he's actually already begun that work. If anyone's in Christ, Al read it in 2 
Corinthians 5, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. And when those new people join together in local churches, they create a new society. And God intends that society to be a foretaste of heaven. So as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, in view of the mercies of God, we are to not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can discern and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, and live it out in the context of community, new society. So the gospel trumps all worldly, cultural, social conventions. Like this kind of reconciliation would never have happened in the highly status-based society in which Paul wrote, Greco-Roman world. But in the kingdom of God, social status is trumped by the gospel. So you get texts like this, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. These social distinctions are not erased. You're still either male or female. You're still either master or slave. But they are trumped. What really matters is that you are in Christ. That's the primary central dynamic. So Paul writes in verse 17, receive him because of who he now is in Christ as you would receive me. Cultural norms, values, they don't dictate church life, life in the kingdom because this is a new society. Um, British preacher Dick Lucas said it well when he said this, what, what was being achieved everywhere was the establishment of little oases where an alternative way of life was being practiced and could be observed. I love that phrase, a little oasis. So you're going to be out there, it's dog-eat-dog world, but in the church, it's totally different. It's like coming to an oasis in the midst of the desert and being refreshed because it's totally different here. So here are a couple ways this new society is different than the world from the book of Philemon. First, the gospel changes how we deal with our stuff. What do I mean by that? Did you notice that this letter is not just addressed to Philemon, but to the church that meets in his house? Think about the implications of that. Here is Philemon, a wealthy, influential church leader, and Paul appeals to him not only personally, but writes the letter to the whole church. Uh-oh. Philemon's business is the church's business. That's a little different than the cultural norms, right? These are family matters. This is a family matter now, and that dynamic trumps all other relational, economic transactional dynamics. So the fact that this letter is in the canon says something about even the way that Philemon responded, probably, certainly God's intention. Like, we, we need to realize we can't, like, section off, you know, here's my work life and here's my... No, Jesus aims to be Lord of it all. And maybe that should make us a little uncomfortable, but that's good because don't we want Jesus to be Lord of all? Like all aspects in my life, all aspects in your life. I'm not going to become the sin police, but we need to grow in grace and we want Jesus, King Jesus. We want his kingdom to come on earth in our lives as it is in heaven. And sometimes we need to help each other with that. Secondly, as far as how we see this whole thing fleshed out, how this new society is different than the world at large. This is back to how Paul appealed and sought to motivate Philemon. So Philemon's motives mattered. So the way that Paul motivated him mattered. Again, Christianity is a heart religion. I keep saying that. It's because it keeps coming up in Philemon. Love, heart, my very heart. All of this, not just behavior management. I want it to be willingly chosen, not coerced. Paul's after genuine love, not 
just coercive compliance. So our motivations matter, and how we motivate others matters. Consider this. Like, if Paul had been authoritarian here in this letter, don't you think it would have reverberated in the church? It would have almost certainly shaped how the church leaders in Colossae and maybe even also the church members related to one another on issues like this. It would have sowed seeds of authoritarianism. But Paul knew very well what Jesus said. We looked at it in in the Gospel of Mark several months ago. Mark 10, Jesus called his disciples and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yeah, that's what what it's like in the world. But in the new society, in the kingdom of heaven, not so. Whoever would be great among you must be your slave. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Paul, in another place, in 2 Corinthians 1, talks to the Corinthians who have been, you know, pretty stubborn and slow to learn, and he is incredibly patient with them. And he says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Like, I'm not trying to be heavy-handed with you. I am fighting for your joy. I am working for your joy. So in any way that I get in your kitchen to bring discipline or challenge or rebuke or correction or training, it is all because I am laying myself out for your benefit, for your joy. Why is all this the case? Because we follow the Savior who, though being equal with God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto and used to his own advantage, but he came, made himself nothing and became a servant even to the point of death, death on a cross. And why did he become a slave and die that shameful death? To set us free. Not to live selfishly, but to willingly serve others in love. Galatians 5.13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, selfish desires. But through love, serve one another. So we could say that the upcoming gospel culture series is an opportunity to press into what it means to be this new society because the gospel changes everything, right? So finally, last point. The gospel must be appreciated to be applied and applied to be appreciated. Huh? Okay. Everybody awake? What does that mean? Okay, track with me here because I think this is actually the the punch. Look at verses 6 and 7. So verses 4 and 5, I thank God for how, like your track record, Philemon. And I'm praying that that same dynamic will flesh itself out in this situation. That's what he's saying. I pray that the sharing of your faith, there's actually lots of exegetical issues with this, this verse, uh, kind of notoriously difficult to interpret. I'm not going to take the time to walk through the options, the issues, and all of that. I think it's quite likely that this is what Paul means. I pray that your fellowship with others, okay, this word for sharing is koinonia, okay, and talks about partnership in a, in a shared venture, okay, so that your, your fellowship with others, your generosity toward others in this gospel mission. I pray that your fellowship with others, your generosity toward others that flows from your faith may prove effective in the situation with Onesimus. Kind of a paraphrase here. So that you will know all the good things we have because of Christ. Or if I were to kind of turn it around, say it the other way, I pray that because you know all the good things we have in Christ, every good thing which is in us for Christ's sake, you won't be able to withhold fellowship from Onesimus, but rather will welcome him warmly as you would me. Everybody with me? 
So given where Paul goes in verse 7, like the reason I'm praying that way is because I've seen you do it. You've done it for me. I want you to do it for him. You see? And given where he goes in the rest of the letter, in fact, you've got to look at verses 17 to 20 because this really reinforces this. So if you consider me your partner, that word for partner is also this word koinonia. So if you consider me your partner, if we're together on this, then receive him like you would receive me. And then he says if he's wronged you, and and then he wants the refreshment in Christ. So the same kind of reasoning as verses 6 and 7 is found in 17 to 20, okay? So what this means is this. Here, Here we go. We grow in our appreciation and understanding of the power of the gospel as we apply it to real life. And sometimes in really costly ways. In other words, we don't just grow to know the depth and the power of the gospel merely by educating our heads, but by submitting our wills. Everybody with me? Discipleship is not merely book learning, as important as that is. It's also life learning. Any parents in the room know what I'm talking about? Have any of you parents appreciated, come to appreciate, come to know experientially how patient, how long-suffering, how loving God is because of what you've learned in real life trying to love your child? The gospel must be appreciated to be applied for sure, but also applied to be appreciated. If you, maybe you're not a parent, that's okay. If you've led somebody to Christ or walked the road of discipleship with someone, especially someone who's struggled, it probably cost you, and you likely know this. You, you deal with that relationship, and man, I've got to forgive and be patient and long-suffering and persistent, and then, oh, I guess that's how God has been with me. And you grow to appreciate all the more how wonderful the gospel is. We love because he first loved us. We know that that's true in our heads, but we must, it needs to be appreciated to enable us to love. But when we seek to love, we grow in our appreciation of God's love toward us. Because We're loving not just the lovely, I mean, even the pagans can do that, right? But we love any and all neighbors that cross our path, including our enemies, because he first loved us while we were still sinners and enemies. And when we get involved in that kind of thing, we actually grow in our understanding and appreciation of what God has done for us. So knowing the good we have in the gospel is what enables us to share that goodness with others and sharing that goodness with others, goodness of the gospel, is what enables us to know that goodness more deeply and experientially. So here's the question. Is the fellowship of your faith becoming more and more effective? Like reaching into all these different scenarios and relationships, you're not going to grow, I'm not going to grow in experiential knowledge of all that is ours in Christ Jesus unless we are living out the truths and the realities of the gospel. So let me just close by tying this whole dynamic to a repeated theme in the letter to Philemon. The gospel is intended to create soul-refreshing people. So have you ever spent some time around somebody and you come away thinking like, man, that was so good. Like your soul was refreshed just by being with them. Well, that was characteristic of Philemon, right? He'd done it many times. We see that in verse 7. Paul was asking him to do it again at significant cost to himself. We see that in verse verse 20. So the, the gospel refreshes us so that we can be a refresh, we can be refreshment to others. God refreshes us. We pour that refreshing out on others. Actually, this word for refreshing is the same word as Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you refreshment. And Paul wanted that kind of dynamic 
extended to Onesimus, radical grace and forgiveness. So are you, am I a refreshment to other saints? We need to both appreciate the refreshment that is ours in Christ, the forgiveness, the love, the patience, the everything that's ours in Christ. We need to appreciate it in order to give it, and we need to give it if we're going to appreciate it. So let me close with a quote from the Gospel Transformation Bible, and then I'll pray, and we're going to sing a couple songs to close. When a wealthy slave owner and his fugitive slave both encounter the gospel of grace, they are changed forever. Though they were both formerly slaves of sin, they have become prisoners of grace, each learning how to move from being self-centered to becoming others-oriented. The gospel changes everything. So, simple message is, may the gospel change everything in us and through us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would please give us a deeper, wider appreciation for the gospel, for your amazing grace toward wretches like us, and I pray that it would lead us to love as you've loved us and forgive as, we, as you've forgiven us and refresh others as you've refreshed us. And even as we step out to do that, especially when it's costly and we may want to shrink back, as we live out the implications of the gospel, help us to also grow in our appreciation of it. And may it just be a wonderful, self-perpetuating cycle of growth. For your great namesake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.